0: So on this uh, evening of the uh, day of my father's uh, passing, his uh, death at 98, a lot of uh, thoughts, images, uh, feelings coming and going, but uh, when my brother uh, phoned, it was a about 2.30 in the morning where he was. uh, We uh, both really just felt the beauty and poignancy and happiness for my father that he just led such a uh, wonderful life. Um. So uh, a lot of gratitude, a lot of sense of... uh, Happiness that he was able to finish his days at this uh, uh, house uh, that uh, he uh, built with mom 65 years ago where we grew up, where it's been a central point in our lives, always going back to Lake Chickamauga, Prairie Peninsula, uh, outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee, Eight years ago, my mom was always there, and and, uh, and then until I guess right now, my father was uh, always there. And um, a formidable being, quite a. I think Tanisra was saying that if there's an African expression that when an uh, old person dies, it's like a, a great library as it's just burned down. Well, that would be quite act for my father because he had incredible knowledge and stories and was so interested in people. So he knew everyone's family trees and uh, really uh, took joy in finding out about people's lives. So anyway, the next time we go, for the first time when we uh, open that door, and the house, just like his 98-year-old body is crumbling a bit, but he was always uh, there and my, my brother was uh, laughing a, a little bit because, of course, it was uh, uh, poignant and, and, and beautiful when after, when, when uh, my brother woke up at uh, 2.30. My father was still uh, quite hot and, and warm, but he had, he had probably just died right before that. My brother was sleeping uh, next to him. And uh, so they had a, a few hours uh, to, to appreciate the, the, the peacefulness of, uh, of his finally letting go of this body that was worn out. And uh, the hospice nurse, and these hospice people have been really supportive and caring and loving, and when the hospice nurse came to confirm that my dad had passed on, that was still quite peaceful. But then just as the, the way America is set up, you know, you don't just leave dead bodies around, uh, the, um, at dawn James was saying these uh, guys showed up in trench coats <laughs> with ties to, to, and it was just quite bizarre having these you know he was saying it must be a tough job for those guys too but uh, carrying my body out of the house and my dad used to he wasn't in denial but death he was, would be always joking I'm going out of here in a box probably feet first <laughs> and um, he was uh, uh, always laughing about it. But uh, it was funny, as dawn was rising in the paper, who my dad read religiously, read the newspaper every day for decades and decades and decades, and, and followed the news and read the obituaries and followed and cared about people and did all the puzzles to keep his mind good. Anyway, right at the dawn when the paper was de- uh, being delivered, that's when these guys with the trench coat showed up and, and uh, carried my father out of the house head first. So we could say, Dan head first, not feet first. Um, but uh, anyway, there's a sense of uh, uh, relief. When my mom died eight years ago, um dad was uh, devastated. They'd done so much together and soon after that he collapsed. And um, it just happened to be that uh, Tanisha and I were in a restaurant with him. And um, so this was uh, a little over seven years ago and his uh, lip started to quiver and uh, it didn't quite look right and wanted me to help him to the bathroom and then he, he collapsed. Uh, normally he would have died. What he had is called uh, ventricular tachycardia and usually you, you die, but we were right there. One of the waitresses was emergency trained. There was a policeman in the restaurant and we were right next to a hospital. Mm-hmm. And so uh, at first he was uh, so he survived and he was, but he was a bit unhappy about it at first. He thought, oh, I should have just died. And he said, well, Dad, you collapsed right next to a hospital and we, <laughs> <laughs> and we were there. And, but he was so used to being generous and, and giving this life where he couldn't do the things that he wanted to do, and then soon he wasn't going to be able to drive. And, and since he was a boy of, of six, when his mother got rheumatoid arthritis, and they were Russian immigrants and uh, since he was six he started helping out running this story helping his father in Manhattan uh, run a little grocery store on uh, Market Street in Madison so he's an incredible duty and sense of purpose in life to, to serve others uh, so, you know, when there was the prospect of not being able to do all these things, well life is just not worth living and so he uh at first was in a lot of resistance about this aging dying process, but it has been uh a little over seven years since then, and um and I had the good fortune to, to spend a lot of time with him, many months every year. Now, like this past year, I probably spent six months there uh, just helping uh, look after Dad. And when he was going through this resistance, I uh, What's the point? You know, I, sh- I should just be dead. Why don't you shoot me? And um, I said, Dad, will you get so much joy? out of helping others, could you be open to the possibility that it could also be really rich and meaningful and joyful for, for those to be able to be with you, help you. And that was something that wasn't easy for my father, to receive, to, to learn how to receive. And uh, in this journey of these past seven years, when uh, you know Tanisha and I have been with him a lot, he's uh, gotten so sweet and uh, really, you know, allowed himself to be helped and found different ways to to bless uh, others. He took great joy in um, being helping Tanisha to get her American citizenship, and quizzed her on the, the questions <laughs> of American history so she could pass the test. <laughs> and uh, just, uh, and it was even just uh, lovely to get, I got this beautiful note from uh, uh, Yong today who's uh, from Chattanooga mm-hmm. and he's uh, did uh, we just meet you through the meditation group, I guess. Yeah. That's how we met, yeah. And uh, he reminded me of, of part of the blessing of, uh, of, uh, of the fact my dad didn't just disappear, didn't just keel over and die. Young wrote a beautiful note expressing the, uh, uh, his happiness for meeting my father. But he said, our Sangha, this is our meditation group back in Chattanooga, our Sangha friends in Chattanooga used to say it was your father's gift to the city to have such a strong life force, resilience, and longevity as he did, as it allowed his hometown to be blessed by the extended visits and presence of you and yeah. Maybe he stayed not just long enough to see your published book, which was a big joy to him, but also to see the seed of the Dharma firmly planted in Chattanooga, mm-hmm. and that was it's, it's such a lovely uh, sentiment, uh, young. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And now that you know, I think about it, in, in, in being back with him for for months at a time, I would be there and wouldn't do any social stuff. I would just be with with him, and uh, you know, helping the skin that was breaking down, or Helping him with his medicines, or helping him write things when he couldn't couldn't write, or helping with massaging his feet because uh, he had so much discomfort, and and uh, but uh, somehow in being there, a little meditation group started, and so like once a week on Thursday night, you know, when I was there, when Tanis was there, we would go out to the meditation group, and it would give us a uh, a break from, from from being just in the house, but uh, reconnecting with the refuge and giving a... We would have a meditation and give a Dharma talk and have some uh, questions. And I would, all, I would oftentimes, when I was really tired and going, I would think, oh gosh, what can I do? But I would always be refreshed and delighted by by the Dharma gathering. Then I would go back and Deborah would want to know who was there... What did you talk about? (laughs) And so we would uh, talk it all through. And so, of course, a lot of our Dharma talks were about being with Dad and stuff like that. So a lot of people who might not even have met him knew about him. But he was just delighted uh, of that work. And yes, that's true. All those years going back really did help establishment of that uh, group and we met some wonderful practitioners and meditators like uh, Yang and it's uh, really got a lot of strength now and a beautiful center for mindful living is even flowered in Chattanooga and it's uh, I'm sure dad would be really happy to to see the blessing of uh, him being able to let go of the life, just the way that he wanted to be. If it can't be that way. I shouldn't be here. But to open to that dukkha, open to that which is hard to bear, and in being with it, notice something transforming and opening. Um The Buddha, and upon his realization. The, Understood uh, these four noble truths uh, you know this revealed to him his true true nature and uh, I think Tanisra opened them up this morning a bit you know there is dukkha and, when, and this, this experience of dukkha needs to be understood and it's a noble truth or noble sounds like a thing uh, we quite like the translation an ennobling truth because these, uh, these are done, rather than just facts that you put in your pocket. i got the four noble truths. Okay, what's next? You haven't been on emptiness yet. Can you so i got the truths? You've been over that. Let's do the next one. But contemplating these truths is a dynamic process. The first ennobling truth is there is that which is hard to bear and the task that the Buddha gave was opening to it. And that in understanding it, opening to it, rather than judging it, just wishing it was gone, thinking it shouldn't be here, feeling something wrong with us or wrong with them. He didn't say, it's your problem. He said, there is dukkha, and it needs to be understood. And when the Buddha defined, well, what is this dukkha? he started off, birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Sickness is dukkha. Death is dukkha. You know, and really, let's just talk about this aging and death. That it's uh, you know not to be able to walk, not to be able to hardly get up without uh, everything aching, not to be able to drive and do the things that one used to be able to do. It's dukkha, not easy to bear. But in this encouragement to open to it and be with it. There can be something very, very uh, beautiful uh, that can happen. My dad became really soft and appreciative. It's not that there wasn't still discomfort and that wasn't uh, difficulty, but it uh, helped him hold more lightly to this that he thought is me and mine. He realized it's not just what I thought it was, it's shifting and changing. with what you don't want is dukkha being separated from the loved or what you do want is dukkha not getting what we want is dukkha in short the five focuses of the grasping mind whatever this grasping mind latches onto the mind that it's not that it's an evil thing when the mind doesn't know any better the heart sees stability safety happiness, it sees me, mine, it sees myself in what we can hold on to, grasp, secure my health, my life, my power, my, my precious uh, loved ones, and that any focus of the grasping mind, this is the subtlety, you see, is dukkha, because as we as contemplators have been reflecting. When the mind that takes something to be me depends on that, leans on that, what is called in the Dharma takes birth on that, is Dukkha, because, as we know, it changes. Strength turns to weakness. The day turns to dusk. The calm turns to turbulence. This was the, the entrance to the, to the Buddha's own, own path, this, this real reflection on old age sickness, death, what he called the heavenly messengers, Devadutta. He said they're heavenly messengers. They're, there's something very important in being willing to learn from this aging sickness and death. When the Buddha talked about his youth, he said, I lived in refinement, utmost refinement, total refinement. My father even had lotus ponds made in our palace, one with red lotuses, white lotuses, one just for blue lotuses, all for my sake. I used no sandalwood that was not from banars. My turban was from the Nars or Varanasi, as were my tunic. Sunshades were always held over my head to protect me. Three palaces, one for the cold season, one for the hot season, one for the rainy season. He had the best food. Even though I was endowed with such fortune, such total refinement, the thought occurred to me, said the when the Buddha was reflecting on his youth before he went forth in search of the truth. When an untaught, run-of-the-mill person subject to aging, not beyond aging, sees another who is aged, when someone who doesn't practice sees an aged person, they're horrified, humiliated, disgusted, oblivious that he or she themself, too, is subject to aging, not beyond aging. Then he reflected, if I, who am subject to aging, were to be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another person, that would not be fitting. As I noticed this, the vanity of youth entirely left me or another translation of, of that when I thought of that the young person's intoxication with youth dropped away mm-hmm. it's the same with, 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 with sickness as someone who doesn't practice oh I don't want to see the vomiting, diarrhea, mm-hmm. fevers or, disgusted and he thought well I'm subject to that it doesn't befit me he said the vanity of health left me, or the intoxication with health left me, and it's the same with with death, heavenly messengers, even though I was endowed with such good fortune, such refinement, Thought occurred to me when an untaught, run of the mill person, themselves subject to death, sees another that is dead, if they're horrified, humiliated, and disgusted, it's not befitting. So his intoxication with life or the vanity of life dropped away. Monks, there are these three forms of intoxication. Intoxication with youth, intoxication with health, intoxication with life. He's not saying to take care of ourselves. He's not saying to, to just throw our life away. But to contemplate, let these experiences be heavenly messengers. Drunk with the intoxication of youth, an uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person engages in bodily misconduct, verbal misconduct, mental misconduct. Having engaged like that on the breakup of the, of the body, they reappear in in a plane of uh, deprivation or a, a painful deprivation, a lower realm. Drunk with the intoxication of health, and we just take our health for granted don't really reflect on its nature. Same with the intoxication of life. And then later when he was reflecting back, as I maintain this attitude, knowing the Dharma, without acquisitions, realizing that when we're intoxicated we just clean, depend on something, assuming it really is me and mine, this health, this pleasure, this circumstance that's an intoxication when there's a disenchantment, a not a version, but a clearing of our vision, especially through this reflection on the changing nature of things. Then we realize that one see something is changing. We can call it mind, but what does that mean? There's that fading of that. Illusion that we can really grasp something. There's what's called a relinquishment. That's what it means by life without acquisitions, realizing that it's not even stripping away. When we see how changing things are, naturally there's a relinquishment, a giving back, what the Buddha called patinisagha, a relinquishment. As I maintain this attitude, knowing the Dhamma, without acquisition, I overcame all intoxication with health, youth, and life as one who sees renunciation at rest. So the essence of renunciation, rather than stripping things away, is this letting go of what's not ours anyway and then resting in what remains. It's resting because... Nibbana, when the Buddha defined described Nibbana, the ending of greed, hatred, and delusion is Nibbana. When there's trying to find security where there's no security, wanting pleasure to last, wanting confidence to last, wanting any to last, wanting to get rid of, that's endlessly stressful when greed or when grasping and rejection is relinquished, our dharma eye opens and we realize what's, what's already here. So how did the Buddha phrase this? As one who sees renunciation at rest, or another way of putting it is this relinquishment allows us to rest in suchness. Ironically, though, grabbing hold of something seems so secure, <coughs> if you're holding to something that's changing, you keep wavering. People hold on to the view. I'm right, you're wrong, they're the enemy. So if we hold on to the view, it seems so secure. They're the evil ones, I'm the good ones, I'm the right ones. Then when that willpower can't be sustained and one relaxes, fundamentalist approach to life turns into them feeling possessed. Oh, we get overwhelmed by doubts and fears and I should talk all night, but I don't know if that would appreciate it. Dukkha needs to be understood, turn into this condition, human condition of mm-hmm. aging. And that it ennobles us, make us more realistic. And what happens when we turn? To the nature of conditions On one occasion The Blessed One was dwelling At a yodja On the bank of the river Ganges There the Blessed One Addressed the monks Monks suppose this river Ganges Was carrying along a great Lump of foam A man with good sight would inspect it Ponder it Carefully investigate it And it would appear to him to be empty, hollow insubstantial for what substance could there be in a lump of foam so too monks, whatever kind of form there is that's internal our body, external daylight a storm a plant a sound So two monks, whatever kind of form there is, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, a monk or an, a contemplator, a contemplative, inspects it, ponders it, and carefully investigates it, and it would appear to him to be empty hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in foam? As we on this retreat have been contemplating the forms, not conceptually, as we experience the form of the body in and out. Expanding, contracting. As we penetrate and dive into the experience of the body, we notice it's pulsing, vibrating hot and cold. And right now my, my father's form. James, who was talking about how hot dead was last night, and then as he woke up, body was still warm, and then all that heat, just the heat that digests our food is just leaving and just returning to the heat element. Last three days he couldn't drink, didn't drink anything, didn't speak. It's in like a coma. The water element's now returning to water. The air element that vibrates through the body, through the breath, the winds, all just returning. And soon, in a matter of days, the, the the form just would return to the cremation ash. It's there, it's gone. That's form. Suppose, monks, that in the autumn when it's raining and the big raindrops are falling. So again, we're by the river. Suppose, monks, in the autumn when it's raining and big raindrops are falling, a water bubble arises and bursts on the surface of the water. A man with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it, and it would appear to him to be empty, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a water bubble? So too much. Whatever kind of feeling there is. Pleasant, unpleasant. These powerful feelings we get. Whatever feeling there is. Past, future or present. Internal, external. Gross or subtle. Inferior or superior. A monk inspects it, ponders it and carefully investigates it and it would appear to him to be empty, hollow, and insubstantial. For what substance could there be in feeling? Similarly, monks, in the last month of the hot season at high noon a shimmering mirage appears. You can see something in the distance. A man with good sight would in Inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it, and it would appear to him to be empty, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a mirage? So too, monks, whatever kind of perception. There he is. So he's going through all that we take to be me. The forms is foam, like foam. Feelings like a bubble. Perceptions that are so powerful this is good this is bad so powerful this shouldn't be here seems so real and the perception changes you wake up and you don't like the feeling oh it's terrible I don't like this this is, this is bad I knew it would come again I thought I'd finish with it and God, there it is again I was hoping the yoga would mm-hmm. do it if it didn't maybe I need a maybe I should not yin yoga, but maybe I should have done it. Um, I angry something more young. You know? <laughs> and the suffering from believing that perception, yet that perception is like a mirage. It's there and it's gone. Sometimes even when the, in times when I had a lot of exhaustion and discomfort, when I was looking after my father, I wasn't well myself. But helping with his skin and with his feet, it was just (coughs) so nice to help. And so even though I was not feeling well myself sometimes, it wasn't Dukkha. Even though it was uncomfortable, but I wasn't creating anything out of it. And yet sometimes we can have a little, just a little bit of, oh, do we have to go to the city? Oh, man. Tanisha's probably gone to sleep once she going to ring that bell. <laughs> Slightest little feeling sometimes can be overwhelming or perception. It shouldn't be this way. All in perception. And when we look at perception that seems so solid that we look more closely, it's like a mirage. There's no... You can't grab it. It disappears. The Buddha goes on to talk about Moods. What's called sankara, or is like a, a banana tree. Because looking for heartwood, some good core wood, you won't find a core to it. How do you put it? Suppose monks that a man needing heartwood, seeking heartwood, is, you know that the most wonderful wood at the center of the tree that's really good for building. In search of heartwood would take a sharp axe and enter a forest. There he would see the trunk of a large banana tree, straight, fresh, without a fruit bud core, whatever that means. He would cut it down at the root, cut off the crown, and then unroll it. As he unrolls the coral, he would not find even soft wood, let alone a heartwood. There was no core. He couldn't find a, a heartwood. It was just coiling around. A man with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it, and it would appear to be empty, hollow, and substantial. So we should look at all these sankharas that seem so me, seem so substantial—my desire, my aversion. The same with consciousness, he compared to a magician's show. Anyway, in our path of contemplation, when we stand under, allow ourselves to open to the experience of stress, rather than just blaming it or feeling bad about it, we have the opportunity to notice how we generate suffering by not understanding form feeling perception volition volitional formations consciousness and when we have the opportunity with something as simple as noticing an in breath and an out breath appear and dissolve a sound to appear and end In honoring the true nature of things, we have the opportunity to notice something that we've overlooked. When the Buddha gave this sermon on the Four Noble Truths, at the end of the sermon, the discourse, the Buddha said, Kandanya knows, Kandanya knows, he was one of the five disciples that first heard the discourse. and you think, oh, what did he entered the stream, he tasted Nibbana. And we might imagine there's some great high esoteric teaching that's too high for us. But when the Buddha restates what Kandanya knows, he knows what arises ceases. Later, it wasn't in this course, but in the Sharangama Sutra, when he talks about the images, the, the similes that helped him enter the stream and taste nirvana, this what arises, ceases, he gave an image with it, which I want us to reflect on tomorrow and tonight in our meditation. He said the guest dust image, simile, helped him. He said when light It is like a traveler who stops at a guest, stops as a guest at a roadside inn, perhaps for the night or perhaps for a meal. When the guest has finished lodging or when the meal is finished, he packs his bags and sets out again. He does not remain. The host, however, does not go far away. Considering it this way, the one who does not remain is called the guest. And the one who does remain is called the host. Guest then means one who does not remain. Something that comes and goes. The sound is a guest. What remains? In breath and out breath are guests, liking and not liking, feeling healthy, feeling ill. What remains? the sound appears and dissolves and yet the listening the awareness what the buddha called the original brightness what remains what remains is invisible when we're so when we're making assumptions when we imagine forms are solid health is solid Pleasure is solid. We lean on it, take birth, and then get frustrated when it dissolves and then seek again. By an honoring the guest life, the impermanent, there's the possibility of recognizing that dimension, what the Buddha called the unconditioned, the deathless. That was the first image that helped Again, when the sky clears up, the morning sun rises, says Kandanya, when he's talking back about what helped him. The morning sun rises with all resplendence, and its golden rays stream into a house through a crevice to reveal particles of dust in the air. The dust dances in the rays of light, but the empty space is motionless, Considering it this way. What is clear and still is called space. What moves is called dust. Dust Dustin means that which moves. The guest dust. We take that which is moving and everything we can see everything we can hear, feel, taste, smell, sense, think about, it's moving, vibrating, like these bubbles, like this foam. It's not <coughs> to dismiss it, but in honoring the guest-like, dust-like, vibratory nature of conditions and really realizing how much stress we cause ourselves in the world when we want it to be what it cannot be. and shifting our vision a little bit. Noticing the space. Is it possible as we notice, for example, this talk, the words. Dharma talk. um, Tuesday night, day Kitty's father died. But to as we go close and notice the sounds, the guests, the dust dancing, can we notice the spaciousness and stillness, the living silence within which every sound keeps dissolving. We're not diminishing or dismissing the forms, but honoring the empty nature, the insubstantial nature. And so it is said, just as space is to form and silence is to sound, so is awareness to all conditions. We focus so much on the forms, who's here, who isn't here, who we like, who we don't like, and do we notice that that all this form couldn't have in, couldn't operate without the space infinite space all around us. Similarly, we're so focused on the sounds that we like, don't like, the words we think of, we agree with or disagree with, but do we notice the silence around every sound? The matrix that allows sound to come and go, that living, listening matrix so is awareness to all conditions. So it's not that we're diminishing experience but noticing that all this life experience is arising and ceasing in this ground of awareness. What the Buddha called the original brightness Why do practitioners, he says in the Srangama Sutra, not accomplish full awakening? It's because they don't understand two roots. They're like one who cooks sand in the hope of creating a savory delicacy. They may pass through as many eons as there are motes of dust, but in the end they will not obtain what they want. What are the two? The first root is the root of beginningless birth and death. All this suffering and birth and death, what is the root of that? It's the mind that he says seizes upon upon conditions and takes them to be me. Whenever we do that, through not understanding the true ephemeral nature, we create suffering. That's the root of birth and death. What is the second root? the true root. The second root is the primal, pure substance of beginningless, awakened nibbana. It is the bright essence of consciousness that can bring forth all conditions. Because of conditions, you consider it to be lost. Living beings lose sight of the original brightness. Therefore, though they use it to the end of their days, they are unaware of it almost like a fish in water Uh, this essence of consciousness, this brightness. We overlook it when we're so busy going to something we think we're going to get or fighting something we think we have to get rid of. So this third ennobling truth, the tasting of Nibbana, the gateway to that is this really honoring of conditions keep ceasing what arises ceases and can we let every sound the spaces and sound every thoughts, the happy thoughts, the unhappy thoughts even right now many of us are tired because we've had a long day practice maybe there's painful sensation But that doesn't mean there has to be suffering. There can be suffering if we think, oh, I wish it could be over soon. Um, maybe he is going to talk all night. <laughs> but uh, to notice the difference in a moment if we just even see aversion or whatever feeling there is or the sensation, just as we've been doing in that lovely Yin yoga practice, to just be with the sensations of the moment and the reactivity. And in a moment of really just noticing it for what it is, whatever it is. In a moment, if there's not pushing and pulling, we can, un- we can get a sense for the, that spaciousness that's not disturbed by the dancing. Or get a sense for the host that remains. All kinds of hailstorms and windstorms and hot and cool happen, but the space is undisturbed. Can we just take this opportunity to have moments of letting things be as they are, letting go? Remembering, the Buddha said, this original brightness is always here and now, always inviting us. It is at the core of every condition. And all this seeming separateness merges. It all comes together. It's the place where there's no me, you, my father, my brother. All these thoughts, all these differentiations keep dissolving with every sound, every thought back into this original brightness of our own heart. So, thank you for your uh, patience today. We're all of us working, walking in the footsteps of the countless wonderful men and women over the ages who've practiced let's let's take heart we are on that path so to finish with the words of the Buddha just as one faring through a forest should see an ancient path traveled by people of old with beautiful pools, groves gardens So have I seen an ancient path traversed by the enlightened ones of old. Having fully come to know this path, I've established this way for the welfare of all. So let's take heart, keep trusting that this path takes us where we've always already been, right here in every sound, every thought, every perception. If we let it arise and cease, will take us home to our own true nature. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com